Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Women without children walk the road less traveled. And for the vast majority of them, this path was not of their choosing. In fact, of the women who reach midlife without children, only 10% chose a child-free life. 10% are childless due to infertility, while a full 80% are childless not by choice. As you know, I fall into that 80%. And I know many of you are also in that 80% or are concerned that you might be at some point. We often feel very alone. But statistically speaking, we aren't. In fact, in America, one in six women has no children. And this stat is one in five worldwide. So we feel alienated. We feel like we're out of sync with the vast majority of women in society. But there are a good number of us out there. I'm very excited to share with you the work of Jody Day of Gateway Women. She is also childless, not by choice. And she shares her journey and her path with us today. Also sharing that next week is World Childless Week. So if you feel alone, know that women worldwide next week will be connecting in this virtual summit, Building Bridges, Finding Common Ground. And I quote from their website, World Childless Week aims to raise awareness of the childless, not by choice community to help the community find support groups that understand their grief and help them move forward to acceptance. We are here for you through the year. We get louder in September. Today's guest, Jody Day, will be participating in the summit, as I said, and also Katie Seppi, who you remember from episode 132, Childless Not by Choice. She'll be involved as well. Here's a little more about Jody. Jody Day is the British founder of Gateway Women, the global friendship and support network for childless women with a social reach of 2 million, started in London in 2011. She's the author of Living the Life Unexpected, How to Find Hope, Meaning, and a Fulfilling Future Without Children. A thought leader on female involuntary childlessness, she's an integrative psychotherapist, a TEDx speaker, a founding and former board member at Aging Well Without Children, and a former fellow in social innovation at Cambridge Judge Business School. She's a proud World Childless Week champion and ambassador for Perinatal and Involuntary Loss and Childlessness Alliance. She's also a blow-in in rural Ireland where she lives with her partner and their dog and is working on a new book. My interview with Jody Day after this. As most of you know, I met Dan via a dating service. And the reason I hired a matchmaker was because as a professor, 
I was interested in meeting a professional gentleman with similar values of commitment to his career and service to his community. But I wasn't meeting that type of man on my own. So I hired a service to introduce me to some. I know many of you have experienced this frustration too, which is why I'm happy to let you know about Millionaire Match, an exclusive award-winning dating site for elite singles looking for serious relationships and marriage. Millionaire Match's detailed verification process ensures you'll connect with high-quality, compatible matches, saving you your precious time and energy. Millionaire Match has been in business for 26 years, matching successful professional men and women with singles who align with their values. You can download the app for free. Just search Millionaire Match in the App Store or click the link in the description of today's episode to download Millionaire Match app. Jody, welcome to the program. Hello, it's lovely to be here. It's so wonderful to share your work and your community with my community. So many of the women that I interact with on social media and who are part of the Love and Life family, so many of them, I think most women assume they'll be mothers. And many of the women in my community are in that stage of life and really wrestling with motherhood, what that means for them. Is that something that they can let go of if it doesn't happen without feeling a great deal of angst and sadness and grief. There's just so much surrounding this topic and your work really addresses it in a a most loving and supportive way. So I want to, again, welcome you to the program and ask you initially to maybe share a little bit of your journey, how you got to this space. I think it always helps for people to understand that, that they're not alone in this. Yeah. And that thing about not being alone is so crucial Whatever struggle we're going through in life, it helps so much to know we're not alone. And I'd just like to say thank you for your work, which is also incredibly kind, compassionate and supportive. So right back at you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) So I'm actually, I think I cover quite a few of the different bases of ways that you can end up childless in a strange way. I mean, when I was a child, I thought I probably didn't want children. I came from a very um, fractured and unhappy home. My own mother had me very young by accident and wasn't really ready for motherhood. And so I got all of that transmitted to me as a kid. And I kind of grew up thinking that, well, you know, that I didn't really want to have a family because family didn't look like such a great experience because, of course, I was basing that on a very immature perspective, thinking that all families were going to be like my family because that's what you do when you're a kid. And um, so I kind of went into young adulthood uh, thinking I wasn't going to have children. And I got accidentally pregnant when I was 20 Mm. in a very loving relationship. But I was terrified. I I, I think that is I was absolutely terrified because the message I'd got from my mother, from teachers at school, from the culture was that having children ruins your life. Now, that's Mm. what I heard. Really what that was all about was all about teen pregnancies, which were a huge thing. We've seen a massive reduction in teen pregnancies, which is brilliant. But they were so focused on school, on telling us not to get pregnant. They kind of put the fear of God into us. And then I was growing up um, in my kind of growing up years. I was born in 64 with the 70s. So sort of second wave feminism was really having a big impact on women's lives. And Many of our mother's generation were seeing different opportunities opening up for us as their daughters that hadn't been available to them. And those were the ones we were being encouraged to go for. So we have these two kind of narratives going on. And there I am, 20, vulnerable, 
um, still quite, well, not still quite traumatized, still very traumatized in an unconscious way by my childhood. And so I chose to have an abortion. It was a very difficult decision. I don't regret it because I would have been, I wasn't ready to be a mother. I wouldn't have been a good mum at that point. But I didn't know that I would not be able to conceive again. So uh, that relationship um, ended about a year later. And shortly after that, I met the man who later became my husband. When we were getting serious, I said to him, I don't think I want to have children. And he was like, okay. And then a few years later, after being married for a few years, I was 29. I had begun, he was part of a big and loving family. He was one of six. And I began to realize that maybe my idea of family life was a bit skewed mm -hmm. and that maybe it might be possible to have a different kind of childhood to the one I'd had. So I said to him, I think I want to have a family. And he's like, okay. So, <laughs> you know, these two, these two life altering discussions, because, you know, it's that it does not always go like that. Right. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to conceive. Mm. So a couple of years later, I had an operation, which is called a laparoscopy, where they send a, a camera down through your navel to have a look around. And when I came out of surgery, my very avuncular Harley Street sort of private gynecologist said, you know, first class property, finest uterus I've seen all week. You <laughs> lovely young people just go off and have lots more sex. And that was it. That was all of the fertility advice I got. There was no damage from the abortion, no reason why I couldn't conceive, no reason why my husband couldn't conceive. We had what is called unexplained infertility. Mm. We then spent the next few years, I'm moving through my 30s now, trying mm -hmm. every alternative treatment there possibly was. I could have just walked around London sort of stuffing bundles of notes through people's doors because if someone said they had a treatment, you know, anything from sort of shamanism to strange things with eggs and cough mixture and mm -hmm. taking every kind of vitamin you could imagine, I was up for it. Yeah. Moving through my, my 30s, getting increasingly desperate. I never called myself infertile. I was always going to be getting pregnant. I never identified as infertile. I just thought I wasn't pregnant yet. Mm -hmm. And we get to about 37. My marriage was, it was a bit of a mess by then. My then husband, who was a very glamorous, sort of hard living, hard partying interior designer, his kind of, uh, they'd become sort of partying had become addictions. Mm. Um, although when you're in the middle of it, you don't really know. It's a bit like those frogs when you boil the water. <laughs> yes, It was very messy. And I was a very, very good codependent wife of an addict, keeping all of the shows on the road in our, in our business, which we had together in our personal life. And it just came to a head one day when he said to me, I think we should move to IVF now. And I had this awful epiphany when I thought, I can't bring a child into this. Mm. And I'd grown up in chaos. I just couldn't do that to my kids. And I think that was one of those awful moments that changed everything. And, you know, I think that was the genie out of the bottle. And gradually over the next quite short period of time, about six weeks, things got worse and worse. And I had a, to use St. Brene's term, nervous breakdown slash spiritual awakening. <laughs> and I woke up in my life and I thought, oh my goodness who made all these terrible decisions? <laughs> and, you know, I was, I, you know, my marriage was, you know, we split up not long after that. And I think, I mean, I, because of the baby mania, as I call it in my book, mm -hmm. I think I was back out there and dating on the very, very brand new world of internet dating with indecent haste. Mm. 
Yeah. I wasn't ready. I was coming out of a 16-year relationship with someone I'd been with, you know, my 20s, my 30s. And I just thought I'd meet someone, do IVF. That was my plan. You could put, put it on a post-it note and I thought it would succeed. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that this silver bullet of IVF that I'd been led to believe always worked fails 75% of the time. That's the global figure. And for a woman, you know, by then in her early 40s as I was, you know, I was looking at a between three and 5% success rate. Yeah. I had no idea. But you know, in the end, I didn't get to try to see if it would work for me because I had two relationships post-divorce. Um, one of them didn't want to have children. Uh, the other one, luckily, we didn't get to that point because it was a very volatile relationship and there was some nasty kind of narcissistic elements involved. So by the time that ended, I was 44 and a half. And even my Pollyanna optimism could mm-hmm. see that if I met someone, it would need to be at least a year before we could even think about doing IVF, I'd be 45 and a half. I knew that for me, it was game over. And that was the beginning when my internal narrative shifted from thinking of motherhood as something that would happen for me eventually, and childlessness as this kind of inconvenient way station, to realizing that childlessness was going to be the rest of my life. And I fell into a profound pit of grief and found no support or understanding whatsoever. Yes. And you speak to this disenfranchised grief and others in this space Mm. are providing platforms and groups and connection because it is something that it's the loss of something you never had. Thank you so much for sharing your story Mm. because I think it can be very confusing for women because they have received so many messages about we can have it all and do it all and be all and we don't need we don't need a man and we don't need this we don't need that we can be misindependent and we feel that and we're thankful for our grandmothers for everything they did to fight for our rights but we also do deeply desire connection and oftentimes we desire i think most of us desire some of those traditional connections such as motherhood and when we don't experience that we can especially with the single issue, the feeling of, well, I shouldn't even want this. I I don't need a partner, right? I should be strong, independent woman. And then the shame of feeling like I'd want this and then realizing I feel additional shame because I feel like I shouldn't want this. And I think the same can be true. Like you mentioned some of the second wave feminism, this ideology that can be really hard for us to sort out. Yes, and I think a lot of circumstantial childlessness can be an unintended consequence of those feminist changes. Because certainly when, for many of us, our our mothers and our teachers encouraged us to get a higher education and get into the professions, they had no idea, because it has never happened before, what that might do to kind of the dating and mating patterns and how it might be that actually... We would, uh, we would create a generation of women who were much more highly educated, but not at the same time when many more men in that generation became more highly educated. So what we saw was, um, you know, many more educated professional women looking to partner with men of an equal or higher social status or educational status at a time when actually there were many more women like that. 
And it's, you know, it is a kind of a numbers game as well. And it's very hard because the, 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 the sort of the dating rhetoric, the kind of the sort of rather, I have to say, rather misogynistic dating rhetoric is that, you know, that you, you didn't try hard enough or you were too picky or this, that and the other. It's like, no, I was just working and getting my life ready, you know, so that I was in a place for a great partnership and hopefully a baby. And then that window was so small. Yeah. And, you know, life is long. Female fertility is short. And the fertility industry gives a lot of misinformation and a lot of hope about how we can extend that when actually, especially when we move into our late 30s and 40s, which is when so many women and couples seek that support, the stats are so against us. And the media doesn't represent that. So it can, you know, people get aren't sympathetic. They think, well, you know, you should just do IVF or you should just do this. It's like, it doesn't work most of the time, even if you can afford to do it emotionally, financially, logistically, culturally. There are so many reasons why it may not be right for you. Right. And as you spoke to, the financial piece is, is it's no small number. And we always hear the stories of that Hollywood star who got pregnant at 49. And of course, the other piece of this story that isn't often told is that oftentimes those are donor eggs. Mm. And so that may not be revealed. And so again, this perception that don't worry, IVF will save the day may not be accurate. Absolutely. And I, I completely acknowledge you know, those celebrities are real people with real families it's not up to them to be a public information service and to Absolutely. reveal exactly how they got pregnant. That's between them and their children and their partners. Mm-hmm. It's just so difficult because, as you say, it is a biased perception that comes out right. that, you know, you can get pregnant at 50. But also what we don't hear about is all of the other celebrities and people with extensive resources who threw everything they had at the same problem as much money and health and the best doctors in the world, and it still didn't work. We don't hear about the sur- the amount of surrogacies that don't work, that end in miscarriage. You know, the donor eggs don't work. We only see the success stories, um, and it gives a very false impression of the success of these procedures. And as for the money, I mean, it, it, it can be stratospheric. Um, it, it, there is some in the UK, you, depending on where you live, is a little bit of what's called a postcode lottery on whether you mm. get support, you know, maybe for one or two rounds of IVF, but it's it's very, very patchy. And that is not all childless women need. They don't just need help getting pregnant. You know, most of most of those going in will come out without a child. And there's and then they just come out into a void. Or worse than a void, they come out to a world full of censure and pity and judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you spoke to it that there's, well, if you had put aside your career and gotten serious about meeting someone, and if you hadn't been too picky, you should have married that guy when you were 24 and you actually had eggs left. There's a lot of that. Of course, I deal with that in my space, why I wrote my book, because I heard all those things. And I thought, so the solution, according to some people, would just be to marry someone and that was the solution. I mean, sometimes life just doesn't play out as planned. And people, of course, they see someone hurting because she didn't get to become a mother or because she's single longer than she wanted to be. And of course, they want to fix it. But unfortunately, there can be that blaming that it's your fault that you're in this predicament. And that doesn't help. And I know people want to control and they want to 
make sense of something that doesn't make sense because it's really hard for us to wrap yeah. our minds around and cognitive therapists and cognitive psychologists speak to this. We, we're, our brains are primed to make sense. So when we see someone, mm -hmm. and I hear this all the time and I know people mean it in the best way, they're like, oh, you would have been an amazing mother. Oh my gosh. And I'm thinking, oh wow, okay. What am I supposed to do with that? And I know that they are coming at it with this, it doesn't make sense. It, that doesn't make sense that Karen, who seems to be so nurturing and loving and all these maternal instincts. It doesn't make sense that the world wouldn't have provided her with a baby. But that, that God wouldn't have the assumption that the world is a place that makes sense. Well, exactly. Yeah. And yet, many, and again, many people our, who become parents, you know, who don't want to become parents or don't mm -hmm. have the resources, either financial, logistical, emotional, social, many other reasons why it might be really difficult for them to be parents. You know, it's the, life isn't fair. Right. You know, and the universe isn't just. Um, and as human beings, as you say, we're meaning making machines. We are always trying to make sense of that through different types of belief systems. And to that piece about, you know, you would have you would have made a great mom. I, I do have a rejoinder to that if you're feeling courageous, because it is a bit of a conversation stopper. So <laughs> you, you would have made a great childless woman. Oh my. <laughs> yeah, I can see that stopping conversation. That's a boundary. That's clearly establishing I'm not uh, open to having this conversation. But also just maybe a moment to reflect on yeah. what does that mean? And because what they're, I think also what they're trying to do in that moment of saying you would have great, made a great mum is they're trying to rescue us from mm. the status of the identity of childlessness. They're trying to say, I really wish you didn't have to be one of those childless women. Mm. So it's actually also a bit of a put down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the unconscious bias of pronatalism, which is in all of us, it's part of our culture. And, you know, I had to root it out in myself before I could explain it or help anyone else with it, you know, is that being a parent is to be a more grown up, grown up and to be a proper adult in a way that being childless, either by choice or not by choice, just isn't. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And I agree, obviously, there's strong cultural pressure. And as a developmental psychologist, I'll argue that there, there's probably a biological pressure too. I mean, nature versus nurture, our urges and our impulses and our drives, there's a natural piece of that that's probably genetic, but the drive to procreate. So I think we're experiencing that on a biological level as well. Yes, I mean, there is interesting, the whole talk about, you know, the idea of having a biological clock only really came to prominence in the 1970s. It's only, it's interesting, it's only when women started to have a lot of other opportunities mm. and then having children that people started talking about the biological clock and about it ticking. It never, never really came up before that. But I think in a way, perhaps it's more a social clock than a biological clock. Um, it's, it's very interesting, but it's not, I agree with you, there must be a desire uh, to procreate. Um, as as part of our species. But um, there's a very interesting book, which is called The Baby Matrix by Laura Carroll, which looks at some of the research on this. It's not an instinct like like eating or drinking. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't die without it. So it's like it's it's more subtle in humans as as the interpretation of so many of our instincts are as such a complex species. Um, and not everyone, not everyone has it. Not every woman wants to be a mother. Many child-free women have been very clear from very, very young um, and not necessarily from unhappy homes like mine, just very young that it's not for them. Mm -hmm. And I really admire that, um, that they know that and that they live at a time when it's possible to follow that belief 
Mm-hmm. And there's the cultural belief that they must be unnatural women or deviant women or cold women or child haters. I have to say to a person, every single one of them that I know, many of them work with kids, they are some of the loveliest and quote unquote maternal women I know. They just didn't want to be biological parents. And I think there are some people who become mothers without really wanting to become them. It just sort of happens and they make right. the best of it. And some, and some of them do a great job too, being moms. And then there's the rest of us. either Mm -hmm. 10% of women who reach midlife without children, it's for infertility reasons, 10% choose it, there's what's called child-free, and 80%, are childless by circumstance. And certainly for me, in the decade that I've been doing this work, the circumstance that is growing more and more is not having a willing or suitable partner during your fertile years. That seems to be really growing in the reason that women are joining Gateway Women and don't have a child. And we and it's a bit of a double whammy because there is the sort of the cultural shaming of them as not being not being um, partnered. But also there's this idea that they weren't chosen to be the mother of someone's children as uh, in addition to sort of not being chosen to be someone's partner. Now, these are internalized and and as you know in your work and externalized kind of things, but it's really important work to unpack that in yourself. And that's why work like yours is so important to start to kind of destigmatize almost your own beliefs mm-hmm. about this so that you can occupy your life in a way that works for you. Mm-hmm. It's always getting back to those beliefs and the meaning that you ascribe to them and then the thoughts that are being fueled by the beliefs and then the feelings that are being fueled by those thoughts. And we have more power over the meaning that we ascribe to every situation, even profound circumstances that we didn't ask for, we didn't want, like Mm. childlessness. We have more power over the meaning we ascribe to that, but sometimes we feel very stuck. We don't believe that there's another alternate vantage point that we can resonate in. And I do, I hear from members of my community that piece about being chosen. I spoke with one woman, she said it was the loss of the child she never had. It was her own internal sense was that she was not chosen, that somehow Mm -hmm. she wasn't worthy to be a mother, which to her was the most important role that a woman could embody. And she was not not only going to miss out on this amazing experience that's so integral to the to the female experience she was going to miss out on that but also she had not been chosen and the layers of grief just even saying that in the last 30 seconds as I I hear myself talk I'm thinking the layers of grief yeah I mean gateway women supports women who are grieving not just the baby uh maybe not just the baby and the partner and all those things but also grieving the identity Mm. the identity of motherhood the social status that that brings us in society as a kind of, as a, a sort of a fully realized woman. And, you know, let's, and also participating in so many of the rituals of life that, that go with parenthood and motherhood, you know, from the baby shower onwards to the, the first day at school to, you know, being, you know, having siblings and all having children together, your children growing up, maybe going to college, maybe getting married and having their own kids, being grandparents, giving grandchildren to your parents, all of those things. I mean, once we move into midlife, pretty well much all of the the sort of social occasions and celebrations are around parenthood and partnerhood. Um, and if you don't have either of those, who celebrates you? And how do you celebrate yourself? It's it's really challenging. 
However, I think the work it takes to own your worthiness in those conditions produces women of such profound psychological and spiritual maturity because they have to go so deep to find themselves underneath all that and clear out all the pronatalist baggage and clear out the sexist baggage and so much in order to kind of reclaim their worthiness that the women that I work with who've been through this process of grief and transformation have come out the other side. They are amazing. (laughs) And there's parts of me that wonders, hmm, I wonder if there's a reason why we've never seen so many childless women in our society, whether chosen or unchosen, you know, educated, liberated women in midlife, not bringing up children. I thought maybe the world actually needs us. Because we're actually pretty awesome. But the public <laughs> perception of us is that we're, and this is a quote, is that we're a bunch of weeping weirdos. Newsflash, not true. We're oh. actually pretty awesome. Who would say something like that? What <laughs> Childless woman herself. Oh. She came to a talk that I gave. I used to do a talk and then like a meetup afterwards um, so that people would kind of chat. But giving a talk felt a lot less sort of pressured than like coming to a support group or something because there was this idea, which is true, that you can just kind of come in, sit there, if it, and if everyone is a weeping weirdo, you can just leave. Mm-hmm. And, and she said that was her thought. So she kind of snuck in at the back and then looked around the room thinking, and I was like, oh, my goodness, everyone looks really normal. In fact, they look quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you spoke to earlier about the – tension in a breakdown slash moment of clarity, right? Every crisis is an opportunity if we're able to see it that way. And because it's the road less traveled, at least currently now, based on statistics, maybe it won't be in, in years to come, but because it's the road less traveled, because we don't have these, these roles that we like you said earlier, we can easily step into and all of the parties and all the celebrations and even the social connections. Mothers meet other mothers, right? They take their kids to preschool or to the mommy meetup and they meet other mothers. So their friendships on their adult female friendships are also perhaps a bit easier to totally. to, to cultivate because of that role of mother. But because we don't have that, it's as you spoke to, we have to do this deep digging and determining whether or not we're going to decide that then our life is in fact less valid and less worthy and that our existence is meaningless and we have to decide, okay, even if everyone else thinks that about me, I don't have to carry that definition Mm -hmm. of, of my identity around with me. And I love that you talk about identity and status because that's some of the work I did in my dissertation surrounding identity development and it's something that we are cultivating and it's something that we continue to evolve in our identity throughout life. And again, for the woman who is childless, she doesn't step into these, these roles that she just gets by virtue of now I'm a mom. And again, because our culture, at least in the U.S. and I, I would imagine in the U.K. as well, we really glorify mothers to a degree. And I used to work in child welfare. My first job was a therapist for kids in the child welfare system mm. in the south side of Chicago. So a lot of these kids, the mom had a a drug addiction. So that's why the children were pulled from her. Fathers were usually not around. And the bias, these kids would sometimes be in a foster home for 10 years. 
mm-hmm. and the mother would make promises to get clean and addiction is messy and ugly and mm-hmm. horrific. So not trying to minimize her struggle. But what I saw as the advocate for the children was this bias to if the mother, after repeated attempts to get clean, finally did get clean for two months, yanking the child out of the only home the child's ever known to place the child with the biological mother. And again, I'm speaking to here, this glorification of mother, and in this case, that it's the bio mom that should have the right to have her child back, even after 10 years of not being able to care for the child with this other foster mom in place who has been the mother I mean, what, what other mother are we speaking to? Just because this woman ha- had this child in her womb for nine months, the true mother was then not able to keep the child. These sorts of things are really speaking to our notion of motherhood. And again, so often any other identity other than motherhood can seem like the consolation prize or the, well, that's nice you got your doctor. That's nice you got that CEO uh, role because it's a nice second best to the ultimate role a woman can uh, step into, which is motherhood. Yeah, that's that sounds like a that sounds like a really tough experience. What you were describing to, to sort of be part of watching those kinds of things happening with those young kids. I uh, in my my psychotherapy training, I specialized in child and adolescent psychotherapy. I work with adults as well, but I spent a lot of time working as the school therapist mm. in both sort of, you know, schools for young children and sort of older and teenage children. So I have some idea of what you're talking yeah. about and how complex those situations are. The I, call, I write about the fetishization of motherhood in, mm. in my book and in my work, because I believe we're also living through a, a very interesting s- social moment in the glorification of motherhood, which I think is and this is sort of more of a kind of a middle-class motherhood, professional women's motherhood, in that it's to do with, I believe it's actually a backlash against the women's liberation movement. It's almost like a, a new glorification of the role of mother that wasn't really there. When I was growing up in the 70s, it was not cool to be a mother. Mm-hmm. If a pop star or a film star got pregnant, they had to drop out of the public eye until after the baby was born and their children were never seen with them. It was not cool to be a mum. And then, you know, we fast forward sort of when um, when Lady Diana was, you know, got married in about 1982, which was when I was leaving school and then was pregnant. She wore this huge navy blue sort of polka dot maternity smock. And there was something slightly shameful about being pregnant in public because it meant you'd had sex. It was a <laughs> private family matter. You know what I mean? It was... and. And then we fast forward again to sort of Demi Moore in 1991, being on the cover of Vanity Fair, just wearing body paint with a sort of a a pregnancy bump. That was the first sort of the first celebrity pregnancy bump. And then we go forward another 10 years to Beyonce being pregnant with twins. And she practically broke the Internet with a kind of a huge pregnancy belly dressed up as a, as a most gloriously beautiful sort of African fertility goddess on Instagram. So we see this, this, this real shift in my lifetime between pregnancy uh, and motherhood being a private family affair to it being a commodified, monetized, commercialized and fetishized thing. So something very interesting has happened in the culture about how we view motherhood as being part of a woman's status. And now even a Z-list celebrity in the UK, all she has to do to really make the cover of those awful magazines that are in, you know, those weekly magazines in the supermarket. I don't know. I'm I'm proud to say I have no idea what their names are, um, (laughs) the magazines, but, you know, is is to be pregnant. It's become Mm -hmm. a notable 
female achievement. Now, I don't want to downplay it. It is an amazing thing to happen for that woman, for her partner, for their family. But it's become a public achievement in a very interesting and problematic way. And I think that gives women who don't have children or can't have children or haven't met someone to have children with, it it really makes their experience feel so much harsher because it's like, that's the one thing my body was meant to do. That was the one thing people will always say, look at her. She's done a brilliant job at life. She wins. You know, she's, she's had a baby. And that's so untrue. And it also, you know, it's like we adulate, we adulate pregnancy and having a baby, but actually culturally, we still don't give nearly enough support actually on the ground to families. Well, right. And over here, at least, and probably there as well, we hear a lot of the mommy shaming. So once you do have this baby, then there's this is the way it's got to be. And uh, I hope you didn't use any drugs during delivery. And then I hope that you're growing your own organic vegetables. And you know, there's just a lot of, again, it's not something I've ever experienced, but a lot of mommy shaming as far as the right way to raise this precious bundle. And if you deviate, then I think women can feel a lot of pressure on that end as well. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I've worked out, I think childless women get all the shame and then mums get all the guilt. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no one's getting out of this with an easy ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black. Don't wear white till it's right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. So when I'm dealing with the concerns of my community, which mm. I spoke to earlier, and I obviously... As those who are in the helping space, of course, me as psychologist, I look to the research, you as a therapist, you do the same. And then, of course, we also borrow from our own experience. And so a lot of women who are in their late 30s, early 40s, this fertility window is Mm -hmm. coming to a close. They feel pressure, angst, urgency. And at sometimes, in some instances, they may feel tempted to, quote unquote, settle just try to find someone. (laughs) I just need a sperm donor. Let me get him here real quickly before my fertility is done. And of course, my message is all about not settling, having almost married the wrong person for the wrong reasons in my 30s. At the same time, by not settling, by waiting for and holding out for a really extraordinary, exceptional partnership, you may then not be a mother. I'm curious mm. how you address this with your community when someone is in that mm. kind of that scary window of their fertility. Well, I, I'd say that's there are many difficult moments along this path. I think that that you described it as the fertility window closing. And for me, that period of my own life, that sense of I, I felt like I had one foot in two camps, mm. you know, that there was the, you know, I'm not going to be a mum and I am going to be a mum that they were, they were both a reality and it was really, really hard 
to, to make any decisions about anything because it was a very panicky. Mm-hmm. I actually describe it as the tunnel. My very first blog mm-hmm. talks about being in a tunnel that's getting narrower and narrower. And you get to a point where you can't even turn around. You know, you're just just so claustrophobic in this awful place where it's like every decision I've ever made has brought me to this moment. Mm-hmm. And, and and it weights everything with, with the most terrible fraught tension about making the right decision in that moment. I I support women when they're on the other side of that because interestingly, in the first years of Gateway Women over a decade ago, I used to run workshops and offer resources for women who were in that still hopeful place, as I called mm-hmm. it. And I discovered that no matter how much support I gave them and how helpful the workshops were, ultimately, I couldn't give them what they wanted. They didn't want to be me. They right. didn't want a role model. They didn't want to be childless. They didn't want to know how to inhabit a childless identity in a peaceful way. I represented everything they didn't want to be. Yeah. So there is, in a way, I'm my work, all of the resources I offer are actually more helpful when women are at the other side of that, when they know it's definitely not going to be happening for them for whatever reason. I think the most helpful thing in that place is to meet women like me or see women in the media who are childless and have made their peace with it because it's very difficult to be it if you can't see it. Mm-hmm. And our culture overrepresents motherhood. And when it does include childless women in films, in fairy tales, in the media, we are usually represented as the deviant woman. If there is a sort of a psychopath or a deviant woman <laughs> in a film or a novel, she will be childless or child-free. Mm-hmm. The culture really, really supports this idea. There's something wrong with women without children. From, you know, Cruella de Vil, psychopathic puppy killer, also single. <laughs> you know, Snow White's evil stepmother, you know, the witch in Hansel and Gretel that eats children. There are very deep tribal archetypal roots to this fear around the childless woman that come from the survival of our species. Mm-hmm. And they operate de- on a deep level. But it means that in our society, we don't see realized, happy women without children, not just child-free women who've made that choice, but women like me, like you, who've come through the pain and grief of that not happening and have found a different way, a different core of meaning around which to shape their identity. And I think the most helpful thing for me when I was in that stage would have been to know, okay, I don't know how, but you can get through this. And the message the culture gives to childless women is you will never get over this. Mm-hmm. Your life will forever be destroyed by your childlessness. You know, abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. <laughs> and that is not true. But how terrifying is that? Right. I mean, if you have an option of a guy to get pregnant with at that point, I mean, those kind of whoops, pregnant things, they're not available, you know, to, to gay and lesbian and bisexual women often. You know, but if there is an opportunity to get whoops pregnant, I can't blame anyone for taking that option. And some of them work out and some of them don't. Mm-hmm. Life is weird. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's just this. I love that you're speaking to folklore and yeah, and you spoke to the stepmother, which I am. And that's a fun one, right? <laughs> I mean, it, did Disney just doom all stepmothers to be wicked and evil and hating it's older children? than Disney, I'm afraid. It's <laughs> yes, way, yeah, pro- absolutely older than Disney for sure. So I, I appreciate that you're providing something 
other because it's so sorely needed. And what sorts of things would you like to see in society in general to create more space for this, this life that even though it may not have been chosen, it really can be wonderful and beautiful and just as fulfilling as any other life. And I think, like you said, there's very few messages that would assure a woman that happiness is possible after mm. childlessness. Well, I think, you know, my work is really all about bridge building. And I think, you know, bridge building on a sort of a macro level between friends who have children and don't have children is really difficult and important. Mm -hmm. And it reflects a kind of, I think, pronatalism and the sort of glorification of motherhood as well at the moment has done a really good job of dividing women, mm -hmm. um, which is incredibly sad. Um, so I'd love to see more bridge building. I've been on some podcasts recently um, with where the podcast hosts have been mothers who are very curious to understand their own blind spots. And that is fantastic. You know, I would love work, my that part of my work to have a bigger audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, get me onto Oprah, get me onto Brene Brown. You know what I mean? <laughs> I really, really want to talk to, yeah. you know, to help people start to see their blind spots. Because what this is, this is about speaking across difference. And that is fundamentally a huge piece of work in our culture. Almost all of our sort of social problems seem to come down to not being able to manage difference very well. And this is, this is one aspect of it. And I suppose I'd love to see more protection and more recognition of the challenges that women without children face in the workplace, in the taxation systems, in their family systems, in their communities. There are lots of practical things that need to change, including an awareness that the, you know, one in six women in the US doesn't have, reaching midlife without, without children. It's an average of one in five around the world is that they are all going to be aging without children as well. Yet they will have spent their life paying into the taxation system. Why should it be so difficult that they might not get a little bit of extra support when they're aging without the natural advocates, hopefully not always, of, mm -hmm. their, of their adult children? You know, it, it can be very vulnerable especially if you're also single, to be aging without children. And I think when you add sexism and pronatalism and ageism together, you get this unholy trinity of prejudice against aging, single, childless women. And it just makes my blood boil because I think that's something structural we can do. Uh, and I think we need to be speaking to it and about it more. I hope you get on Oprah's show and Brene Brown and whoever else has a platform. You'd think Oprah would be down for it. She's not a mother. Your voice is so needed. And I'm so thankful that you've shared with my community today. And I do hope that you are able to reach all those big influencers that are out there who have large platforms where when folks are able to share on their programs and in their spaces, it really can make an impact on our culture. So Jody, thank you so much for joining me. Tell my listeners about your book. And I know you said you would offer them a free download of the first chapter sure. so let them know about the book and then where to find you across social thank media you. thank you um my book is called living the life unexpected how to find hope meaning and a fulfilling future without children it's published by bluebird which is an imprint of pan macmillan in the uk and it's available in bookshops or online 
And also you can find me on Instagram at Gateway Women. And the website is gateway-women.com. We have a fantastic private online community, which is not on Facebook, with a very big and active subgroup, which is which is the single group for our members who are also unpartnered as well as being childless. We also have a childless stepmothers group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and many other groups which are unique in the childless support world. We have a, a group for women of color, for childless Christian women, Muslim women, Jewish women, and for our LGBTQIA plus childless sisters, we aim to be diverse and inclusive. And really anyone who is childless and is facing a life, a, a, life, a permanently involuntary childlessness is welcome to join us. We're a pretty awesome gang. Mm, Thank you. I, I love that. Thanks again so much for joining me today. And we'll have the promo code in the show notes and I'll promote on social media if that's okay with you to let let uh, my community oh, take Oh, that's absolutely of fine with me. Yeah. You're a pretty big influence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm active. <laughs> but thanks again, Jody. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you, Karen. It's been delightful to speak with you. The love and life hack for this week is the life unexpected can be hopeful, fulfilling, and meaningful. As always, thank you for sharing a portion of your day with us. I hope that Jody's words and her story have been encouraging for you and that you'll take advantage of World Childless Week and everything that's going to be offered there. It's at worldchildlessweek.net. Head over to my website for your free empowered dating playbook. If that interests you, I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter and stay in touch that way. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.